and welcome to the May 2009 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Matt? Doing all right. Still trying to get my second cup of coffee down here, so I'm only partially awake. Okay, partially, uh, halfway halfway caffeinated. Halfway caffeinated. Half a calf. Matt is half caffeinated, and I'm sitting here eating. I'll try not to eat. Uh, in front of the microphone, because you'll get this little crumbling noise. I'm eating Trader Joe's trail mix with chocolate-covered espresso beans. And you have just aroused the curiosity and the envy of half the country who have no access to Trader Joe's. Who have no access to Trader Joe's. Good job, Sean. Well, you need to get access to Trader Joe's. We we prayed for years for Trader Joe's to come to Pittsburgh. It's a little taste of the new heavens and the new earth Mm -hmm. on earth. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, well, hey, we're we're here at the table, um, but we're not going to talk to you the whole time this uh, this month. Uh, we wanted to, like we did last year, bring you a little taste of the Twin Lakes Conference. That's a conference that happens every April in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, it's a conference hosted by uh, Ligon Duncan and uh, First Refo- uh, First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, the P- big PCA church uh, down in Jackson. And uh, what the Twin Lakes Conference is, is really a fellowship of pastors, uh, pastors who come together. I, I think, uh, what, what did that we used to call ourselves, Matt? Something like the uh, the evangelical middle of the PCA or something along that lines? I can't remember. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, just a... I would call it a warm piety Calvinism. There you go. There you go. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's heart... And theology, you know, doctrine and heart mixed together. Um, You know, a desire to see sound theology to to do what Paul tells Timothy and guard the teaching, uh, while at the same time um, learning in God. Yeah, delighting Delighting in God. God. It's like our little niche of Piper's world in the PCA. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, is anything else we want to say? We Matt and I just got back from this conference. There were a number of. Uh, excellent talks, as there always are. Um, Ligon Duncan, uh, Derek Thomas, uh, Jonathan Lehman, who is a part of Mark Dever's Nine Marks ministry, uh, he did a talk on, what was that called? It was something about the emerging church. Yeah, it's actually, I think it was the What is the Missional Church? And it, um, the talk is uh, an adaptation and uh, maybe a supplementation of a paper that he wrote maybe 2005 um, for Nine Marks e-journal. Uh, the paper itself is excellent. It's available on the Nine Marks website. Uh, the talk is excellent because Jonathan does a good job of bringing out what he thinks uh, the good things people are trying to do by using that word missional, but also some of the dangers because of the way that it's used, particularly um, in the emergent strand of um, what's going on in the American scene. And so I think that Jonathan does a good job of saying, you know, here's some things to really appreciate and to embody in our own ministries. Um, but here's also some some real cautions about um, at least the original way in which uh, missional was defined and the way that it's used by probably by population, the majority of the people that use it. So somebody like Tim Keller and Mark Driscoll use missional, but they mean it in a quite different way uh, than the majority of people who are using it. So I, I don't use the word because I think it's too easy to be mistaken. But Jonathan's comments are very helpful, spot on, and uh, good for us just to keep the best even of uh, movements where we not, might not agree uh, with everything that they're doing. 
Yes, and if if you if you're listening to this and you have no idea what emergent or missional are all about, uh, Jonathan's paper is a uh, is a good introduction to that as well. Yeah, uh, if you're just catching up on all the all the latest lingo in the in the reformed world, that's it's uh, it would serve uh, well for that purpose, and you can just go over to what is it nine marks dot com nine marks dot org dot yep. org nine marks dot yep. org, and that's in the number nine, right? I believe it is, yeah. Okay. Uh, so just head over there, uh, look up that paper. I'm sure a search for Emergent would get it. Uh, his talk is also available on the Twin Lakes Fellowship blog, uh, as well as a couple other sites. And what I'm going to do is in the posting for uh, this podcast, I'll put up a link to where you can find all of the audio for the conference. Um and encourage you to go over there, give it a listen, and uh, and if you're a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church, uh, by all means, sign up and uh, come join us at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. It'll be uh, next April, 2010 will be the next one. Well, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Uh, we wanted to give you a little taste of the, uh, of the conference. And so last year we gave you uh, Ligon Duncan's opening talk. It's a talk that he gives uh, every year, uh, but it's a little different every year. It, imp- it improves uh, every year. It gets nuances uh, every year, and it's uh, um, it- it's not like going and hearing the same sermon again and again and again. Uh, that was last year, and that Ligon's talk is really the introduction to the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Uh, what we want to give you this year is a sermon by uh, Doug Kelly, one of the things uh, one of the things that we do at Twin Lakes Fellowship is we have three separate worship services, and uh, they're led by folks who are leading worship services um, in their own ministries, and so you get a chance to sort of see how your your brothers in Christ are doing worship and how they're uh, leading uh, worship services uh, in their ministries, and the first night is always uh, Professor Doug Kelly, who was a uh, professor of, um, I can't remember, was he systematics at Jackson? I think he still is. Systematics. He still is. At, well, he, okay. was, he was in Jackson at systematics, and now he's in Charlotte with RTS. Okay. And he is, he was the professor of, you know, Ligon Duncan, Derek Thomas, these guys had him as a professor. So this is a man who's uh, been been around for a while. In fact, it's funny, he, he'll start uh, this sermon talking about the fact that the Twin Lakes Conference has been going on for 10 years, and uh, he'll tell a little joke in there where he uh, remembers 10 years ago, uh, barely... <laughs> So yeah. he was he was surprised that it's actually been ten years that he's been doing this and giving the first sermon uh, at every Twin Lakes conference. You know, it's funny. You and I we've been going for about four or five years, and the thing actually I, seven, Sean. No, yeah. Have we really been going for seven years? We didn't go in two thousand two because I hadn't moved there yet to Pennsylvania. But we started going in two thousand three, and this is two thousand nine. Inclusive reckoning that would make seven years. We have been going for seven years. Wow. Can you believe that? Uh, I couldn't no, believe it. So I, I can't. It this year. I can't. Sorry, we're just doing a little remembrance <laughs> between good friends here on the publicly here on the podcast. Public remembrance. This has really been a. The reason that we bring this before you is this is this conference. These men have been a really formative influence on Sean. These are some of the men who have taken us from sort of being newbies trying to figure out. Wait, are you what are you not including thing. yourself in this? 
I am. I said okay. us. Well, you said Sean. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, the, uh, no, I'm absolutely including myself if, in that. Um, yes, that, Matt was it, not influenced by these people, but Sean was. <laughs> Matt just likes to go to keep tabs on him. <laughs> I just like the I just like the 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 venue is wonderful. Um, it's by a these lake. These guys have really helped us. Can can those conferences where you're going and staying in a convention center go to a conference by a lake? Yeah, yeah. Uh, even by two lakes. Yes, twin. So Yay, we, we bring twin. these guys before you because God's really used these men to form our lives as ministers to give us perspective about ministry and the, and. Uh, doing ministry God's way using his means. And so that's why we bring them to your attention oh, once a year. One of the memories, I don't know, Matt, maybe you can think of a uh, memory you have of Doug Kelly. I think I think the one that stands out most in my mind was a couple years ago when R.C. Sproul uh, was at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And as it came time for, I, I think it was Doug Kelly was about to preach. He came walking up the aisle with R.C., and as they're walking up the aisle, they're telling jokes to one another in Latin. <laughs> and it, it was just one of those some sort of sick foolishness <laughs> about that. It was it was just a surreal moment <laughs> that you go, you know, there. I think the combined mental uh, capacity of these two men uh, was. Uh, you would you know would like would put would run a city you know it was it, it's equivalent to the electrical current of of the city of Seattle and the city of Seattle could run if you just plugged the two of these men in and their labors over the and years and their and their labors over the number the years. of students they've influenced and yeah i mean you could you without exaggerating you could say that this this conference and these ministers are essentially the product of Doug Kelly's teaching yeah, you, that would not be too. That would not be over the top. That would probably be merely accurate. Yeah, and the funny thing is, though, when you listen to him, you're not gonna, you're not gonna hear somebody that you go, uh, dull, dry, dusty, boring, systematic theology professor. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You're gonna, you're gonna hear a humility. You're gonna hear a heart. Um, and now his text. Uh, when I when I saw the text, I had no idea what he was gonna what he was gonna do with this. He's gonna be preaching from Deuteronomy twenty three, uh, three through six, which is a passage about why the Ammonites are not allowed to come uh, into Israel. And the thing uh, I had no idea what he was gonna what he was gonna do, but I loved verse six. I'm sorry, verse five of his text ends this way. It says that the Lord your God turned uh, the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And so this is really the heart of what he's going to be saying, which you know where that's going. Uh, you've mm -hmm. been around us. If you listen to this podcast for any length of time, you know where a text like that is going, but you go, you say, what in the world does this have to do with the Ammonites? <laughs> right. And, and he tells you exactly what it has to do with the Ammonites. You know, one of the one of the comments that we've gotten over the years that we've been doing this podcast, which has been it's been a couple of years now. It's been we've been doing this three, two or three years. That maybe we've been three. Doing, it may be three. And one of the comments we've gotten is, "Where are you going to go when you run out of things to say about the preaching, the sacraments, and prayer?" 
Well, first answer to that is, how do you run out of things to say about preaching the sacraments and prayer? Um, but the second answer is this sermon. Because what this sermon does is it shows you that the ordinary means of grace are about the application of grace to our lives in every area. And he's going to, in this sermon, uh, hit, hit you in a place you're not expecting. And when he comes and does that using the text, using the meaning clearly within the text, uh, you're going to step back and you're going to say, wow, the Spirit uh, is working. I mean, when I was listening to this sermon, the Spirit was working as he was preaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, the whole room, I think, was riveted because it's such a contemporary topic, but done in such a Christocentric way that it had that effect of, could you talk more even though you just hit me with a two-by-four, which to me is the ideal of preaching. Exactly. Exactly. Well, without further ado, I, I think we're going to go ahead and uh, play the sermon. I want you to enjoy this. Uh, sit back, uh, listen, uh, take notes, but but above all, listen with your heart and uh We'll, we're going to leave you with this, and uh, we'll be back with you in um, in June. Uh, and until then, may God richly bless you as uh, he applies uh, his grace to your life through his ordinary means. Well, it's always a great joy to be with you. I feel close to you, and thank God for you, and I regularly pray for your ministries. Ligon was saying this has been going on 10 years and I thought I was 10 years younger when I first came down here and a lot of things could happen in 10 years. I was recently went to visit a elderly couple and my good friend and colleague from Dillon, Dr. John Baumgartner would know who they are. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I said in the course of conversation to the lady, I said, uh, how is your brother getting along? She said, Dr. Kelly, don't you remember 10 years ago you preached his funeral? I said, oh... Enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> well, then, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 6. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt and because they hired against the Balaam the son of Beor of Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse thee nevertheless the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam 
but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. Thou shalt not seek their peace, their shalom, nor their prosperity all thy days forever. And so I won't speak to you tonight, beloved ministerial and elder brothers, of how God turns curses into blessings for his people. Certainly we live in a fallen world where the sinful world system actively hates those who to any degree, almost however small, shine with God's holiness. 1 John 3.13 1 John 3.13 Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Why would they? Well, the previous verse, verse 12, explains it. Speaking of Cain and Abel, and that Cain killed Abel. Why? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. Proverbs twenty nine twenty seven. An unjust man is an abomination to the just. And he that is upright in the way is abomination to the wicked. Now we understand some person is a serial murderer and a horrible psychopath. And they would be to us an abomination. But you understand if you're shining with almost any little degree with the holiness of Jesus... You're a stench in the nostrils of a sinful world. The people of God across the ages, for all their many imperfections, have reflected enough of the holiness of God to make the evil world system hate them and at times seek to curse them or otherwise do them damage. Second Timothy 3.12 Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And I had several illustrations from the mission field. I don't want to take time to give it, but you know what I mean. You don't have to go to the mission field. Now, since the disdain and at times curses of a secular world are sure to fall upon true Christians, how can we happily face the future? For after all, it is a divine command, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always in the Lord and again I say, rejoice. 
If we keep the principle of Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, just read in mind, the gates of joy will daily be opened unto us. How be it our God turned the curse into a blessing. So I want us to note three points tonight. First, curses are sure to come to the people of God. Deuteronomy 23, verse 4. Second, God turns curses into blessings for his people. That's verse 5. And then third, I must speak about a curse that we cannot expect God to bless. And you'll find that when we get there in Numbers chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 31, which completes the story of Balaam. First, curses are sure to come on the believers. Deuteronomy 23, verse 4, and I imagine, I don't know, I hadn't talked to anybody. Common sense tells me that some of you maybe feel down about going back home because of the, you're in a situation of, of considerable cursing. Well, let's take the blessed holy Jesus in John 15. Great chapter on the vine. John 15, 17 and 18 from Jesus. These things I command you that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And Jesus goes on to explain. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, selection, therefore the world hated you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Some of you going home to face unpleasant situation, it's for the name of Jesus. You're in good company. Because they know not him that sent me. Strange thing, yet in light of this text, it's not strange. Over the years, particularly in the pastoral ministry, I noticed and sometimes on the same day we'd get somebody converted in the church, in the community. They come to tell you they gotten saved, sort of to your surprise. 
And you know how little faith you had when you were preaching those things. You say, praise the Lord. That same day often there will come some kind of strange attack against you or in the church. Same day. I'm slow and it took me a number of times that happening to figure out what is taking place. The evil one has lost a customer. One of the birds got out of his jail and he's mad and so he takes it out against the church or against the minister or let's say sometimes in our own spiritual lives we get under a little bit of conviction and we say I whatever else I'm going to get close to Christ like it once was or like maybe it's never even been I want it to be as close as possible and they're seeking a fresh consecration and we mean business and suddenly same time right after that time out of the blue there seems to come some kind of odd setback against you. And then you realize the world system and the one that manipulates it hates Christians to draw close to Jesus and he hates a new consecration and he will test you. Old Samuel Rutherford said in one of his spiritual letters he that stands closest to his captain is the surest target for the archers but am I here to depress you tonight (laughs) in the larger purposes of God which is what I want you to see The curses of evil against us are never a reason for discouragement. Second point explains why they're not a reason for discouragement. God turns curses into blessings for his people. I want to look at that in this man Balaam. This prophet had a lot of power. And Israel whom he sought to curse. And I want to look at it a little bit in Joseph who lived long before that. And then in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in ourselves. This principle of God transmuting curses into blessings church would never have survived one generation if God hadn't done that nor would have Israel survived now Balaam uh, sort of a mysterious figure from Mesopotamia well known apparently in the world at that time as a man of spiritual power I'm sure he had the power supernatural power if he hadn't had real power and being able to deploy it, the king of Moab, Balak, would not have offered him so much money 
if he would come and put a curse on the Israelites, and the Israelites were moving, getting near the end of their time in the wilderness, moving to the promised land, and, and it was a huge crowd, over a million, and King of Moab was fearful, he was angry, he was desperate. And so he tells this prophet, <clears throat> Balaam, If you will come and stand on the mountain and look over the Israelite camp, stretching so far in every direction, and put a curse on them, I'll promote you to great honor and I will reward you uh, marvelously. And God had warned Balaam and, you know, the story. And anyway, Balaam overrode God's warnings, even after God spoke to him through the mouth of the ass, and Balaam says, okay, I'll go back, and God says, no, you can go, but only speak the words I've put in your mouth. <clears throat> so Balaam did that. And he tries three times to put a curse on the people of God <clears throat> there before the plains of Moab. And every time he got up and sought to put the curse upon the elect people of God, the Holy Spirit took over his mind and took over his mouth and transmuted the curse before he could even utter it into tremendous blessing. As in... <clears throat> Say Numbers 23. Read this. Verse 3. And Balaam said unto Balak, that's the king of Moab, Stand by the burnt offering, and I will go. Peradventure the Lord will come to meet me, and whatsoever he shows me I will tell thee. And he went to a high place. And God met Balaam, and he said unto him, I have prepared seven altars, and so forth. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return unto Balak, and thus shalt thou speak. <clears throat> and he returned unto him, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up his parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him. From the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous. And let my last end be like his. And Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemy, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord had put in my mouth? And I'm not going to read the others, but in... Verses 17 to 26 of Numbers 23, and then in Numbers 24, 2 to 10, <clears throat> he comes and tries to curse them two more times to please the pagan king. 
And the Holy Ghost comes and changes the would-be curse into tremendous, world-changing, divine, supernatural blessings upon the people of God. And some of those blessings come down to us as Christ, the son of the star, Barkoshba. Star shall rise and see him. Balaam saw him whom we see and celebrate tonight. Now, let us look a little at this principle of God turning the curses of Satan and his, <clears throat> his emissaries into rich divine blessings. And how that worked in the experience of, of Joseph. And save time, I'm not going to turn it up. Genesis chapter 50, after they had buried Jacob, elderly father, the other patriarchs, his brothers, were scared, knowing what they'd done to Joseph, to first intended to kill him after he threw him in the pit, and then sold him in slavery, and fearful he would retaliate. <clears throat> and so they concocted a story, our father said to you to be merciful to us, and Jacob said, you don't need to worry about that, I wouldn't take vengeance. And he said, yes, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to save much people alive. And that is preeminently what happened in the life and death and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acts 2.23 says he was delivered by the determinate for counsel of God. And yet ye with wicked hands took and slew him. What they did was wicked. It was a, <clears throat> the greatest, far as I know, the greatest injustice, the most wicked act in all of human history was when fallen sinful men manipulated by the powers of evil slew in the flesh the very holy blessed Son of God. It's the worst crime. But here's how God transmutes curses into blessing. He takes the greatest crime, the greatest curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He takes the greatest curse and out of it brings the greatest blessing, namely the salvation of all the elect and the very restoral and renewal of the entire Cosmos. That's how God works. We must always, in our thinking, <clears throat> connect the curses that may come on us at any one time to that which came on Jesus for the reproach of them that reproached thee fell on me. And in a smaller and in, in, in a humbler way, in a little corner, usually not seen by many, the same principle of God transmuting curses into blessings is always at work in the lives of the people of God at all times, in all countries, in all nations.
I've got a little story here. I'm, I'm not going to take time to read it. it Dr. Sam Kistemacher was a, my colleague here in Jackson a number of years ago. Did a little book, his memoirs, and he was visiting out in Indonesia, the island of Sumatra, right after, or a few months after the terrible tsunami, the 30-foot high tidal wave that uh, killed so many people. And he found out that uh, in the particular area, a place called Banda Ake, with particularly controlled by radical Islam, that the uh, people in charge, radical Islam in, in that area, they're not in charge absolutely everywhere in Indonesia, but there they are, had forbidden the Christians in that region to celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December 2004. They chain-locked the doors of the churches and forced the Christians out of the city and out of the countryside so they literally had to flee up into the mountains and escape physical harm. The morning of the 26th of December 2004, an earthquake heaved the bottom of the Indian Ocean near the coastline of Sumatra. As a consequence, the water rose some 30 feet, 10 meters, and destroyed everything in its path. Estimates are that about 130,000 people in Indonesia lost their lives or declared missing. The Christians who were forced to evacuate were all safe, though they lost their homes and churches. Even near Banda Ake on a coastal island inhabited mostly by Christians, no lives were lost because they took, as it were, to the hills. It was also reported in the press, oddly enough, that some Muslims asked the Christians to pray for them, saying that the Muslims had sinned, being so many of them were drowned. It comes to us in smaller ways. I've known of people who felt disappointed in a romance. They later knew it wasn't a curse, it was a blessing. <laughs> Probably some people think that about you too. <laughs> and so with not getting a particular job, you feel like it's a curse, it might be a blessing get older, health issues. Probably in this life, we don't see, we will not see how a health issue in any sense could have been a divine blessing, but some way we'll one day know it has worked in the overall purposes of God such that above we'll be able to give him praise for that. Psalm 121 says, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Everything that comes into your life and mine has to come through nail-pierced hands. 
before it gets to us. That is, by the way, why Romans 12 teaches us that we may never return curses for curses or evil for evil. Because vengeance is mine, I will repay, and God certainly will do that and do it right. So we can leave it with him. Psalm 76 verse 10 says, The wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. What that means is God will not let any kind of the wrath of Satan through through mean humans come to you, but what it will advance its praise, he will restrain all the rest. It doesn't feel like it. But you've got to decide, and I have to decide, we're going to look at it God's way or by our feeling. So, summarize the first two points. If we can keep in the front of our minds the invisible hand of God... He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. You know, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself valiant on behalf of those whose heart is right with him. Proverbs. He's always working with his people to turn curses into blessings. We can remember that. We will really be, even in difficult times, a very happy people. Indeed, for we will say what Moses said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, How be it, our God, the Lord our God, turned the curse into a blessing. But then the third point, a little more demanding than the first two. That is, the story of Balaam goes on a little longer. And so I must speak in the third place of a curse that we cannot expect God to bless. It tends to be with us that the things we worry about the most are the curses that we can expect him to bless, and he will. What we don't worry about is the curse that he is not in a position to bless. Now this mercenary prophet, Balaam, powerful man, had another trick up his sleeve to please the king of Moab. By the way, it's that other trick that would be the reason why later the Israelite troops went in and killed Balaam. I used to wonder, why would they kill Balaam? He spoke blessing upon them. Uh, true, but then he had this trick that corrupted a large number of the young men. And that's why the troops of Israel would later punish this prophet. And Balaam up to this point had been totally unable to place a spiritual curse. And he was in touch with the other world. Surely he was. But he could not place a curse on the people of God, try though he did. Those very curses were transmuted by divine, sovereign superintendence 
into world-changing future blessings. But then in order to get in good standing with the king, Balaam suggested to King Balak a ploy, another kind of curse, to corrupt the people of Israel, whom they had so far been quite unable to curse. Well, what was it? Look in, uh, first of all, in Numbers 31, verse 16. And Moses is talking about the Moabites. Behold, all these called the, caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. By the way, Revelation 2.14 calls it the doctrine of Balaam. It's picked up in the New Testament. Some worldly tricks still around. The counsel of Balaam or the doctrine of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And then verses, uh, chapter 25 of Numbers, verses 1 to 5. Uh, Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab and the, these girls called the people under the sacrifices of their gods and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods and anger of the Lord was kindled against them and they had to spiritual authorities had to hang up some heads and then verse 9 and those that and then the plague came out they Mess with these women who presented themselves half naked and then that got them involved in a orgiastic kind of worship, paganism and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. What is, is what Moses calls the council of Balaam or Revelation 2.14, the doctrine of Balaam. Here it is. The doctrine is this. If you cannot put spiritual curses upon the believers, Islam's not going to be able to do it. Hinduism's not going to be able to do it. Secular humanism's not going to be able to do it. They simply can't. You can't put curses, spiritual power on the believers. Not able. Well then... Try encouraging them to corrupt themselves sexually. That's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam should make us very sober about who can really do us the most harm. That is, who are our most dangerous enemies in the battle for God and truth? King Balak and the powerful prophet Balaam simply could not manipulate the unseen world in such a way as to bring curses on this people. No doubt in the Christian ministry, it is our external enemies, equivalents of the Balaams. 
who worry us the most. We see them and we hear them most clearly. Sometimes they breathe down your neck. They're nearby. We feel at times their inexplicable attitude against us. You can't make sense of it. You never did a thing against them. And we would like to escape their hostility. Certainly the Psalms reflect much of this. I won't read it, but Psalm 55, verses 1 to 8. Read it sometime, and it says in there, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then would I fly away and be at rest. We'd like to escape the hostility. We simply don't understand why it is there against us. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with detesting and feeling keenly the attacks of evil against us in in the work of God. It is entirely right to pray against such opposition and you have to do anything you can in an honorable way to disarm it, to uncover untruth and to speak the truth and so forth and so on as God leads you. Certainly. And yet, in most cases, so far as I know, the external poems of the powers of evil, especially the world, the flesh, and the devil, pride of life, will simply not be allowed to do us the damage they desperately wish to do. There's a divine restraint against them. It is something, or really someone, who is infinitely above our limited power to handle a fallen world system. It's right against Christ, Jesus says in John 15. I take it from these texts I've read you in Deuteronomy and Numbers that they're saying to the servants of God then and today, don't worry too much. Be, be realistic, be sober, use your sense, yes. But don't worry too much about what they would like to do to you. Keep turning your mind towards me, the keeper of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. I will handle it. But now here's something we really ought to be concerned about. It's this, the danger that I will corrupt myself morally as I gaze upon the alluring solicitations of what Scripture calls the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. The greatest danger to me as a servant of God is not that God-haters, in some cases even respectable members of churches <laughs> or denominations, it's not that they will curse me and manage to hurt me severely. That, uh, they may try, but that's not what you've got to worry about much. No, here's, here's where you better be concerned, and I join you. 
It is that I myself will allow myself to become attracted by the pleasures of sin for a season and thereby be sucked into impure practices that I know to be wrong. When that happens, I enable the ungodly Balaams of my generation to bring corruption into the inner circle of Christian leadership so that I disappoint the Lord, wound my own conscience, lose the sense of God's sweet nearness, and maybe wind up becoming a religious professional and externalist until we chuck it all in, or at least go along with it outwardly till you retire early. This, if I read it right, is the most serious of all curses we shall ever have to face. The curses we bring upon ourselves by giving in to moral impurity, which at first looks very beautiful. I know many sincerely good ministers who lost everything by doing so. That's why I felt I would take some time tonight to address this matter with you heart to heart because I feel that maybe for a few I don't know possible your response to this matter maybe from here tonight will make you or break you spiritually possibly before too much longer could be so it's not me I, I know nothing it's the Lord Maybe 15 or 20 years ago, Reverend Eric Alexander, then of St. George's Tron in Glasgow, was visiting Jackson while we were still living here. We spent as much time as we could together. And we were talking about some conservative evangelical leaders, both in Britain and in our American South, who had publicly failed the Lord in moral ways and had ruined what we had all assumed were fruitful ministries. We were talking about that. We were walking a while. Question, why had there been so many notable ministerial failures in the moral area from the 1970s to then, and I'd say on down to the early 2000s? Why so many? Now, this might not be right, but here's what we decided might be the case. Could it be that the devil changed his strategy in the late 60s or early 70s, something like that? It seems like from the late 1920s through the 1950s, the evil one spent most of his energy attacking sound Christian doctrine. 
But God raised up many excellent evangelical and reformed scholars during those years who turned the tide and largely won the doctrinal battle for truth and modernism was massively defeated in the doctrinal area. We can think of the effective conservative publications of British IVF in the 1940s and 50s, early Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Banner of Truth and the early Christianity Today and and others. Thank God for them all. Satan for a while was turned back on doctrinal grounds. So it looks like he then put his nefarious efforts into corrupting the moral lives of true believers and especially the Christian leadership of the churches. I think he has done better at this than in the strictly doctrinal area of attack. We have been vigilant in one area and asleep in the other area. I know of more than one conservative minister who would never dream of denying the virgin birth or the blood propitiation or the five points of Calvinism. And I agree with him on all that, yes. But after 20 or 30 years of marriage, went off with another woman. And I know of a few say, how do you know? Because they told me who could not give up internet pornography and soon lost everything family-wise and ministry-wise. I didn't read about it in the book. Weeping in my office, more than one. Balaam had instructed the king of Moab this trick, the doctrine of Balaam. It's still out there, still around here. But in that particular instance, the king of Moab was to provide a large number of half-naked, probably very attractive young women who would parade themselves brazenly inside of the Israelite camp so as to attract the eyes of the young men. It worked with many. Out they came to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But it was for a short season, for soon some 24,000 of them were wiped out in a divinely sent plague for their willful corruption. Balaam's external curses did them absolutely no harm. Couldn't. But his tempting them to moral corruption in the sexual area did work all too well, for they foolishly cooperated with it. Notice what crafty old Balaam used. It was the eye gate. 
something especially hard for us males to resist once we begin foolishly to focus in a wrong direction. John Owen describes how it works in volume six, and I quote, Consider the power of temptation. It will darken the mind that a man cannot make a right judgment of things. It fixes the imagination upon the object of sin. It entangles the affections. It gives all and fuel to our lusts. I want to share with you a few apparently respectable statistics about pornography. It seems that pornography is a major way the powers of evil are now taking the eye gates of many Christian men, including church leaders, and using this access eventually to overthrow their home, their marriage, their church. I don't know how to use the internet, but I've got a student assistant who does. Thank, <laughs> thank the Lord for smart people that are around me. And I say, get me some material on this. And he did. It's called Blazing Grace, this thing he looked up. Let me give you a little bit of it. Not too much. April the 6th, 2007, 70% of Christians admitted to struggling with porn in their daily lives from a poll as reported by CNN. In December of 2000, the National Coalition to Protect Children and Families surveyed five Christian campuses to see how the next generation of believers were doing with sexual purity. 48% of males admitted to current porn use 68% of males said they intentionally viewed a sexually explicit site at the school. In his book, Men's Secret Wars, Patrick Means reveals a confidential survey of evangelical pastors and church lay leaders. 64% of these Christian leaders confirm that they are struggling with sexual addiction or sexual compulsion including but not limited to the use of pornography and I don't mention some of the other things he says. And then get this. Some of you like sports. At 13.3 billion, the 2006 revenues of the sex and porn industry in the United States are bigger than the NFL NBA and Major League Baseball combined. It goes on with some other statistics I won't mention. And finally this. 77% of online visitors to adult content sites are males. Their average age is 41 and they have an annual income of 60,000, 46% are married. If the people I've talked to 
in the last eight or ten years on such matters. I never talked to anybody about that before. But I have in the last several years at, at people's request. And if the ones I've talked to are any indication, I would say that pornography and its associated practices of impure sexuality are more of a problem for churchmen who are in their 40s and 50s than for those who are only in their 20s and 30s. I don't quite know why. Unfortunately, some of the ones who've come to me had already been publicly exposed and had lost everything as far as both marriage and church ministry are concerned. I could certainly pray with them about making things right with the Lord, and I'd get down on my knees with them, pray with them. Always would. But I was very sorry I could not give them back what they had lost. Because of these experiences, you might say, why are you talking to us like this? Here's why. I hope you'll take it the right way. Because of these experiences, I decided it would be right to speak to you openly tonight before it might be too late for some of you. You could still come back and let the Holy Spirit cleanse you, restore you, and make it right. He will do that if you ask him. The devil says he won't. God says he will. And I've known of a few. Most of the ones I know it's too late, but I've known of a small handful that got turned around by casting themselves totally on all the resources of divine grace of Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection before it was too late. I want to say this to you. I believe that, you know, it speaks about most sins we commit are outside the body, but, but sexual impurity is in the body. And it seems to do something very difficult to the spirit. It sort of hardens the spirit against God. We feel alienated from God, and then the devil uh, uses that to make us withdraw from God. As though God would severely chastise us if we came and confessed our sin and asked for forgiveness. Maybe he wouldn't give it. That's false. Isaiah says, God is waiting to be gracious to you. Problem for anybody. Let me counsel you. The finest thing you could read would be Scottish reformer John Knox. He wrote a three-part exposition of Psalm 6. He wrote for his mother-in-law, Mrs. Marjorie Bowes, from whom Queen Elizabeth is descended. A wonderful Christian woman, but, but uh, given to depression. And John Knox calls this uh, exposition a fortress for the afflicted. And he brings out the point that when you uh, say as something between you and the Lord and you know it's your fault and your own conscience 
is unceasingly condemning you. You feel like you can't go back to him. But the only place you can get it right is to go back to the Lord and, and cast yourself down on his mercy at his nail-pierced feet of Jesus. Tell him about it and he will well receive you and become your fortress. Now, what is the best way we have in mind when we meet here year by year, what little we can do, we ask God to help us lead you in some directions that are going to strengthen you for another year. We know how hard it is, what some of you face. You're glad to do it, but it's uh, very demanding. We want to help you. What's the best way to be well-guarded, well-armed against the onslaughts of the worst curse-bringer of all, our fallen flesh as allured by sexually explicit culture, which is manipulated by evil powers who hate the purity of Christ? How are you going to stand up against it when so many others are going down? That's the question. I'm going been there a little closing time with that. It's very important that you listen. You know, the best place to turn in all of this, the very thing that has been the focus of this conference these 10 years, namely the ordinary means of grace. I'm going to explain precisely what I mean. John Owen says in his treatise on sin and temptation that it is best not to focus our thinking about a particular temptation that may be drawing us. Don't think about that too much. If you visualize that very much, it might get a hook in you and, 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 and suck you in. Rather, Owen says, we should heartily immerse ourselves in the ordinary means of grace. Personal and corporate prayer, morning and evening church service, being under the preaching, being faithful at the Lord's Supper, Meditation on scripture, holy fellowship and service to the world. Zealous for those things. Focus on that, not on the thing that's pulling at you. This is our best protection because in the means of grace given to the church by God, the king of grace, fountain of grace, we meet our risen Savior who always has the victory over all the powers of evil. In meeting Jesus in these channels of grace in his church, Satan must flee even from the weakest and the scaredest of us all. He's got to. Let me refer to Owen again. And volume three, in particular place, he's speaking of growth and victorious grace, uh, overcoming things that are hard. 
then he says this, and I quote, that these promises may be accomplished towards us, watchful diligence in universal gospel obedience is expected from us. This is the ordinary method of communication of all supplies of grace to make us spiritually flourish, that we may be found diligent in exercise of what we have received. You don't need something new in these churches. Be diligent in what's there. And you'll be safe. Owen says in another place, it's in volume 6, the ways and means wherein Christ communicates himself is and are his ordinances ordinarily. He that expects anything from Christ must attend upon him in these means of grace. That is, the means of grace are where I meet Jesus. That is why we love the means of grace. Because we love him whom we meet there. Speaking the ordinary means of grace and getting ready to draw to a close. Let me mention a scriptural prayer that A.W. Pink uh, mentioned somewhere in his life of David that I read years ago with Prophet. And he advised the beleaguered and tested servants of God to start every day, even when you don't feel any temptation. Start every day with a prayer from Psalm 119, verse 117. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. I've prayed it for well over 40 years since I first read it, and God has answered. And I'm not going to quit praying it. Let me add here. Some of you will think this is awfully tacky. I don't care. That this is one of the greatest benefits of the regular weekly congregational prayer meeting. It has the authority to bring down divine protection upon the moral lives of the church officers of that congregation. Some may say, you wouldn't say it, but you may think it. I have no time to attend the Wednesday night prayer meeting, or whenever you have it. It takes up too much valuable time to prepare for it, or even to attend. Yes, but you will find time to do other things, things that may give Satan access to your own moral life. You do not bother with the prayer meeting, and later you may wonder why you are no longer inured against certain temptations. What a shame when such divine protection is so near at hand. Some of you may know the hymn 
principalities and powers lurking in unseen array wait for thine unguarded hours. Watch and pray. Watch as if on that alone hung the issue of the day. Pray that strength may be sent down. Watch and pray. And brethren, we are fighting the Lord's battles. I believe that sincerely about you. And these battles are primarily won in the secret places of prayer, both private and corporate. What Paul says in Romans 7 is true of us all, even in the regenerate state. In my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. That is why the best of us needs to be in the prayer meeting. A ministry that is not doing much praying is disarmed against the powers that would corrupt our moral lives. But there is a better way. It is the way, the humble way that you take on your knees, at least figuratively speaking, the way of prayer and dependence on God. Close with this about the means of grace again. God's appointed channels of victorious mercy and power over evil are to be found in true churches. Preaching, prayer, praising, believing, obeying, and regular confession of sins before the Lord's table and then going out into the world with zeal for good works and winning of the lost and giving and loving. It is in and through these ordinary means of grace. But say ordinary, I almost hesitate to say it is full of supernatural power, but humble. It is through these that we are constantly meeting with the risen Lord and Savior, the shepherd of the sheep, he that keepeth Israel. As we tarry near him, an unseen divine protection comes down upon us, and we get through it another day. If you ask God for help one day at a time, it's enough. One more hymn, I quit with this, written by Topoli, the man that wrote Rock of Ages. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. He smiles and my comforts abound. His grace as the dew shall descend. And walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. Inspirer and hearer of prayer, thou shepherd and guardian of thine. My all to thy covenant care, I sleeping and waking resign. If thou art my shield and my sun, the night is no darkness to me. And fast... As my moments roll on, 
they bring me but nearer to thee in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.